It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Today, we revisit one of our most popular interviews today. In August last year, Ed spoke to Kirill Sokolov, CEO and founder of 13D Research. Kirill founded 13D in 1983. Their analysis read weekly by world-renowned investors, including Howard Marks of Oak Tree and Byron Wien of Blackstone. Ed and Kirill discussed thematic investing. Labelled by some the father of thematics, Kirill takes us through his unique approach to investing in secular trends, offering some unforgettable insights along the way, whilst identifying themes to watch in what Kirill labels the new era. And remember, for a roundup of Opto's best content every day, subscribe to our newsletter by clicking the link in our episode description. Enjoy. Hello, Kirill. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's wonderful to be here. And thank you for inviting me. And whereabouts are you calling from today? I'm in upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains. We had a huge thunderstorm last night. And you travel around quite a bit for work, is that right? But it's not not in the typical locations. Not as much as pre-COVID, but I go between Europe and the United States, Bahamas. I used to spend a lot of time in Asia, and I imagine I will again when COVID settles down. Is that primarily from an investment interest point of view, or is it just somewhere you, you like to live? I have homes in various places. That's part of it. Clients, friends. Yeah. It's also nice to survey the landscape. Yeah. Um, and I'm right in saying you used to, used to work in, is it Hong Kong for quite some time? You ran a hedge fund there. Is that right? Or? I co-founded the first pure Asian hedge fund in 1996. Wow. And more recently, I've had an apartment in Hong Kong for the last 10 years. But since I wasn't able to get get in there, I I let it go. But I'll I'll be back. I do love Hong Kong. We just have to see what what it's like. I haven't been there in three years. So you're one of the first, or if not the first individual to invest thematically in the markets and in size. And I just had a question, what, what led you down this road? What, what interests you about investing in this way? That's a very good question. I think that themes are very much compatible with my intellect. And I also think that themes are a great way to invest. Many times, a theme is investing in the solution to an economic problem. And it doesn't mean, you know, you can have recession. It doesn't matter. I mean, the economic problem isn't going to go away. So it's driven by the need to, to fix it. That's part of it. I would say that I got started in themes probably with the creation of 13D. And that was back in 1983. We're actually beginning our 40th year. And stocks were incredibly cheap because... Interest rates had gone to the moon. They were double-digit 15% on the long treasury, double-digit inflation. And breakup value was, uh, was vastly higher than where stocks were selling. And 13D's, 13D filing is a wonderful disclosure document. And it tells you what the investor purchased in the last 60 days, how much he had invested, and his average purchase price, which is wonderful to know. So if you could find out that Warren Buffett took a 10% position in General Foods and you could buy it at 10% cheaper and you study General Foods, this is 1980, you say, wow, yeah, I, I can see this is a contrarian investment. And then, of course, it gets taken over by RJR. So I started that and that was the launching for 13D, 13D filing. So we had 176 of our recommendations were taken over. And the second theme was disinflation. I wrote a book. Is inflation ending? Are you ready? And in the early 80s, there was maybe four people who believed that disinflation was possible. They were all inflation forever. 
bonds were certificates of confiscation. Now they are, but then they were the best investment you ever will see in your lifetime. So that just got me into the, the themes and it's just ratcheted forward. And because I like to concentrate, I will go somewhere or discover something and then just spend all my time understanding it. And I will only do that if it's the next big thing, if it's the really the fantastic place to be. But as a firm, as a firm we do a lot of different themes. Yes. Yeah. So I have a, a large number of analysts who are doing their own theme work. And coming back to today's markets, it's obviously been quite an eventful year. Uh, it feels as though, at least from what I'm seeing, from talking to a few people and obviously monitoring Twitter sentiment, a lot of investors are expecting a relatively short recession followed by a period of growth similar to that of the last 10 years pre-COVID. And what's your big picture overview for now? Has the game changed? Yeah, there's no question the game has changed. Last December, I became extremely cautious for a variety of reasons. I saw people were uh, becoming ill. They were getting hurt. They were in airplane crashes. They were in car crashes. People were uh, falling off of roofs. It was just, you know, the energy on the planet was very dangerous, in addition to all the other things. And that continues. I, I've never seen a more, to me, dangerous environment than, than the present. So I don't want to be a hero. I just want to survive. And the bear market is there, and the bear wants you. And my standard bearer is Jesse Livermore, who went short in the fall of 29. He executed it magnificently. No one ever did anything better than he did. Shorted at exactly the right time, covered exactly the right time, shorted again at exactly the right time. He was in the top 10 wealthiest people in the world. And by 1936, he was bankrupt and shot himself. The bear will get you. So I'm being very humble. I think the odds favor a very hard recession. And I think the Fed is making a massive policy error. The inflation is structural. And this is not like Volcker in the early 1980s. I was around then and I, I actually predicted that was all part of the disinflation trend. And the debt in the, the U.S. and the world was much modest uh, in comparison to today, which is 330% of, of GDP. And it's a much different world. And the financialization of America, you're running enormous risks if you, if you push this to the point that you break something. So I think the odds favor that. But as I say, you have to be flexible. Tomorrow, based on market action, I might change my mind. Something the Fed was doing would tell me to change, and then we would change. So you have to be very flexible and humble. And what are your thoughts on the exponential age, the period of, sort of rapid technological innovation? Are some companies going to shine regardless? Or, you know, it's tough macro conditions make every stock, uh, you know, struggle to push ahead. Well, I think we're in a period like the early 2000s when the technology continued to advance, but the technology stocks did very poorly. And for some reason, and I can't explain why, one decade of outperformance leads to the next decade of underperformance. You know, I wish I could understand it. Market tops almost always seem to happen at the end of a decade. This time, because of COVID and the Fed stimulus, it was, it was pushed uh, out a year or so. But, you know, 29... Uh, 79 in commodities, uh, Japan, 1989, 1999 IT, 2008, and if you will, uh, 20, 2021. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that we're in, a, we're, in a new, we're in a new era, for sure. And coming back to uh, your comments on inflation being structural rather than cyclical, are you able to explain in a bit more detail uh, your thoughts on that? Well, having been one of the first people to believe in disinflation and having labored mightily <laughs> to write a, a, a book in downtown Wall Street in the summer with no air conditioning, <laughs> you really had to believe in it. And I did. So I followed inflation, deflation very, very carefully. And 
I tend to be somebody who believes the longer something goes on, the more apt it is to change. Others believe that the longer something goes on, the more it's going to stay the same. That's just not my, my philosophy, and it's not the reality of history. So I've been looking for a change. And in September 2020, we started to see that the inflation-sensitive stocks were starting to outperform and were starting to come alive after a decade of, of massive underperformance. And the tech stocks, which had led the way, were starting to underperform for the first time. And this was, you know, a very, very important uh, first step. I think that the drivers are, we're in the cycle of wealth distribution. After 40 years of wealth creation, that's inflationary. The supply chain issue, when Trump cut off the technological supplies to ZTE and Huawei, I think that was 2018, that to me was peak globalization because any country in the world was saying the United States, which is you know, bulwark of the rule of law, is deciding that they can choose who will receive you know, what they make. And every country was saying we need to be self-sufficient, particularly countries of large consumers of, of imported uh, technology products. So then we have the, the great resignation. And there's an argument that all the handouts gave people the luxury of not having to work. But I look at it differently. I think that people were in low-paying, frustrating jobs, and they wanted to change. And I can tell you that dozens of people of all walks of life who told me that I'm just doing something different. I'm moving to a different place. Yeah. There's been exodus out of the cities, exodus out of the high-tax states. So that's also part of it. Then you have what I would call the dependency ratio, which is, which is just soaring. And we all know, as Peter Drucker said, demographics are the future that's already happened. So we know exactly what's going to happen in demographics. And this decade is the largest drop in adult working populations since history began. And depending on the country, it's 8 to 12%. Now, that could be deflationary, and that's how I looked at demographics up until 2020. And then I started to study it more, and I foresaw labor shortages. So for 40 years, capital was in the capital seat in the U.S., and now labor is. And now you're starting to see strikes, and you're seeing strikes in areas that are crucial to the economy, logistics, port workers people who work in airlines, air traffic controllers, all the, the key areas. But coming back to the supply chain, as you understand that you can't depend necessarily on another country, you're going to duplicate the supply chain. For 40 years, it was looking for the lowest supply chain, stretching that supply chain and becoming more and more lean and efficient and reducing your working capital. All that is reversing itself. So that's very inflationary. Then, of course, you have the big elephant in the room, which is, and we'll get into this later, which is the, the power has shifted from consumers to producers. And I would argue that we are in peak oil. And in the 2000s, I turned bullish on oil in 2002 at $20 after having been bearish for 20 years. And I understood peak oil. I studied it very, very carefully. And I was the biggest proponent of peak oil in, in the 2000s. And we got out in June 2008 at 143. But I always believed in, in peak oil. And something just didn't make sense to me. And that was public participation in oil in 2008 it was very modest. Every secular peak has always had widespread public participation. Look at the mean stocks uh, last year. Look at uh, the IT bubble. It, just, it, was, it was not existing. So I always thought that maybe the peak in oil prices lay ahead of us. And so now we have this, and Europe and the United States has decided they wanted to sanction the largest exporter of oil in, in the world at a time of peak oil. And the Saudis have just come out and said, we're not going to be able to produce as much as you thought or as much as we thought we could. 
And of course, that's very obvious to us. So that's another driver and a huge underinvestment in all the commodities, whether it's the ones used in EVs or whether it's, you know, it doesn't matter. They're all have been underinvested. And so that's another driver. And then you have uh, geopolitical stress. And that means uncertainty over investment, uncertainty over where you want to, where you want to put your money. And that's, that's inflationary. That's, that's disruptive. So those are, those are the major, the major points. And coming back to um, the global opportunities that are not just from the U S what nations do you think have the most upside potential over, you know, over the next decade? Cause you're a big proponent of looking outside the U S. Well, I, coming back again to the country that did the best market wise, you know, the U S by far outperformed in the last decade. So I would not expect that to continue into this decade. Yeah. It would be logical. It would be based on historical precedent that it wasn't. And our view is that the producers, the countries that produce and the assets that are produced are going to be the winners. Now, of course, China is the largest manufacturer. It's a dominant factor in electric vehicles. And there's a catch-22 here, and Mr. Market is such a cynic. So if we do have a peak oil and the ESG movement is, in effect, forcing continued underinvestment in fossil fuels. The only way out, <laughs> therefore, if you're not willing to find more fossil fuels, which we may not be able to find anyway, is to go with electric vehicles. And I'll give you a, a small statistic here. There are 1.4 billion vehicles in the world. 95% of them use liquid fuel, which is oil. And 60% of oil demand comes from transportation. How many electric vehicles do you think there are? As of May, last time I looked, there were 15 million. 15 million versus 1.4 billion. How long will it take? And there's a huge bottleneck in copper, lithium, cobalt, and nickel. So it's the bottlenecks. I want to invest in the bottlenecks. And would you? how would you access the opportunity investing in the producers of the commodities or in the electric vehicle providers? Well, right now we're in a period where the market is looking at the coming recession. And so the inflation sensitive sectors are under pressure and we have to get to the Fed pivot, which is going to happen at some point. And when the Fed does pivot, then the dollar will get weak and then the commodities will take off. So we have, we, the timing is not right this moment, but I like the oil service industry because the money has to be spent one way or the other. It doesn't matter which country it is. And they're doing well and very cheap, high yields. So I, I like that. I like copper. Copper, of course, is a PhD in economics. It's, it's down considerably because it's foreseeing recession. But if I'm right on structural inflation, and the Fed being unsuccessful in the end. And we had this in the post-war period, you know, they'd have Fed would tighten, have a recession, and then the Fed would ease, and then you know, inflation would go on to new highs and cycle after cycle after cycle. This is starting from a very extreme level. So it's a different story. And I think inflation is much higher than the authorities say, you know, 9.1%. Europe is 12 to 20. I think that's much more realistic. I think it's 15 to 20 percent. It's the way inflation is calculated in the U.S. Owner-occupied rents, housing prices have soared. It doesn't reflect. So they'll get the number down in some way or the other. But the underlying fundamental drivers won't be solved. And so, you know, I would be investing in copper producers, uh, oil producers. Warren Buffett has taken a massive position in Chevron and Occidental Petroleum for the first time ever. Yeah. Uh, I want to be on the producer side. I want to own the producers. And what, if any, are the implications from the U.S. having immense levels of debt? Well, this has been one of the effects of free money. So if money is free, then why not borrow? And then you speculate. And then 
also, if you're a company, you become over-indebted, and then interest rates start to go up, and then risk comes into the market because you know risk spreads uh, collapsed, and the, the price of risk was not adequately priced. So as you start to have bankruptcies and financial crises, then, of course, risk will be, will be priced more appropriately. And this is one of the problems of what central banks have done to try to kick the can down the road, which is to create another big problem. But we are the ones who have to suffer through their policy errors. There are only three ways out of, of debt. You default, you grow your way out, or you inflate. The way I see the world, nobody running any government really has the will to go through the, the default process. And you may remember uh, Andrew Mellon, who was Secretary of Treasury in 1929, and a very gifted man, but probably not a wise politician. He said, liquidate everything, liquidate the rot from the system, liquidate labor, liquidate capital. Of course, he was hung out to drive for saying that. But that's what the system needs, but that won't be allowed to happen. So the politicians will choose inflation in the end because it's the easy way out. And you've mentioned to me, um, we had a catch up before this, this uh, call, that over the decades you've been investing, you don't believe you've missed a single major sort of technological transformation, which is an astonishing achievement. And so I'd like to touch now a bit on the strategy your process um, and how you, how you get to the, this, these points. And can you just take us through how uh, your process for highlighting a few of your key successes in telecoms or the internet, how did you find these opportunities and, and then sort of uh, benefit from investing in them? Well, it's the way my brain works. I'll see something that is minuscule and other people don't think it's important. And to me, the light bulb goes off and the whole world opens up. So in 1988, I read a, a short paragraph which said it took 70 years to, to create a landline system in the UK, 50 years in the US, 30 years in Japan, 20 years in South Korea, but you could do a mobile phone system in one and a half years. And all of a sudden, I understood what this meant. This is 1988. It meant that all of human knowledge would be available to all of humanity and that the mobile phone system would, would basically spread around the world and that the, the mobile device would be the vehicle for it. And we also understood the digital age was coming. And I tasked one of my colleagues, who's been with me almost from the beginning, to focus on what computers called creative destruction and what we now call disruption. And so as the digital world would enter a new industry, obviously there was going to be huge disruption. So we got, we got all of those uh, because it was, just, it was just simple. I mean, you know. It started with uh, the recording industry, and then it was going here, and then here, and then here. You know, we, we were overly optimistic on how quickly some of it would happen. I mean, I could not understand why retail, bricks and mortar, lasted as long as it did. I mean, it just seemed to me that e-commerce was so obvious. This is 1997, 98, and that long-distance learning would be so obvious. So some of these things took longer, some were faster. And then we decided to focus on, on innovation and new technologies. So right now, obviously, it's gene editing, it's uh, AI, it's blockchain, slash Web 3.0, green energy revolution, 5G. You know, it's, it's technologies like that. And they're converging to a certain degree. Yeah which is fascinating, way over my head, but my colleague understands it. <laughs> yeah, so the benefits are compounding if they're sort of making each other push forward. Um, and once you've found a trend, particularly one that you believe strongly in, how do you determine how to 
sort of play it from an investment perspective? Because you, you mentioned EV, you're focusing more on the producers of some of the commodities that are essential for EV rather than the EV companies that may be attractive other people, such as Tesla, Neo, and things like this. Well, I think it's, uh, to be honest, I think our execution on themes is not as good as our big picture seeing the next big thing. And it, it's typical. I mean, it's very hard to do both well. And people have used me to see the big picture and then they go out and execute it. And they do a better job of executing it because they're in the weeds and they have the time on it. And I'm focusing on, on the big things and that's where I find interesting. My own view is I try to be simplistic. So with the EVs, I look at, at the, the, you know, the four metals and I see that maybe there can be a replacement for lithium or cobalt coming down. It's too complicated. Copper, I know, you know, is the key to electrification. And I know there's a huge deficit out there. And so I'll just go, go with, uh, with, with copper. This is for me personally, but for our clients, we, we're recommending, you know, EV metals themselves. When I turned bullish on, on bonds, which was really May of 1984, there was a retest of the, of the September 1981 low, which is 15 and a quarter under 30 year. And it, it came back to 14%, which was the greatest gift of my lifetime. It was just the world had changed and the investment world didn't understand it. And I decided to put everything I had into 30-year treasuries on margin. And I didn't own any stocks. I just focused on, on bonds, on leverage. And that's a fault or is it a strength? And I don't know the answer. But it's been said by some of the great capitalists of all time, put your, all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket. I think that was Andrew Carnegie who said that. I, I like that. And I like the simple execution. But there can be other executions that people do that is more uh, you know, creative and uh, maybe the upside is huger and more intellectually interesting. But that's just not the way I do it. So you're an advocate of concentration when you invest. Um, it's interesting, This um, obviously, so many opportunities and there must be loads of things that look interesting to you, but then you have to then choose the ones that you think are the best. And, and how do you prioritize these? Is it just a feeling you get on the size of the opportunity? And Well, let's, let's go back to uh, 2002. So commodities had been in a 20-year bear market, and China was investing massively in infrastructure. You could have bought any number of commodities, but the one that was most intellectually interesting to me with the greatest upside was, was oil. And you know, we did a reasonable amount of work on that to distinguish which one. And I think we were right. I think oil went from 20 to 147, so that's up almost sevenfold in five, six years. I mean, it was astronomical. I don't think any other commodities went up anywhere near that. And that was maybe just because it's, it's, it was so important and it was driving everything else. So one of my strengths is to understand what, what is the key driver of things. So let's say it's, if you look at inflation since 1973 in the world, it's really been driven by the oil price. And I think the oil price is, is probably by far the most interesting and most important commodity. It's the hardest to analyze. It's almost impossible because there's so many different factors and variables and countries and geopolitics. You have to be very humble in, in analyzing it. So I think, it's, I think it's identifying the one that you think is the key driver of the whole cycle. And now I'd like to just touch on a number of theories that you have on the markets. Uh, anomalies was the one that first came to mind. So you've developed an incredible skill for finding situations when what should be happening is not happening or when what is not happening should be. How do you discover these opportunities? Can you take us through some examples? Well, the best example is the 
2002 period. So the the Asia emerging crisis, uh, emerging market crisis, began in 1996. We actually nailed that perfectly because we've been very bullish on Asia. And I was watching the Asian stock markets, and they were all forming two new tops and starting to break down. And too much capital had come in, so it was hot money in, hot money out. And that money, which I didn't understand at the time, came to the U.S. and fueled the last couple of years of the, of the IT boom. And then Greenspan tightened, and then there was a recession. So the whole world was in recession, and yet commodity prices didn't go down. And after 9-11, commodity prices didn't go down. And I said, wow, this is not right. They should be going down. And then I started studying what was going on, and I saw that China was, was investing massively and using huge amounts of commodities, and also the underinvestment. And emerging markets were ready to take off. So that was a classic, something that should have been happening that wasn't, that led you to an understanding of, of the truth. And markets today are very deceptive because they're dominated by algos. There are a lot of false breakouts, false breakdowns. There's a lot of, of correlation uh, trading going on that makes absolutely no sense because it's based on a short history. So markets can be very, very confusing, and we have to be very careful. But something like that, where it's a 20-year trend that all of a sudden was starting to should have happened, it should have gone down, but didn't. Mm-hmm. I would say that uh, 2015 was also interesting. One of my theses is invest when they're giving it away. I mean, I mean, literally giving it away. I'm not talking about, you know, giving it away. And the major commodity producers who in flush times in the late 2000s had bought all these assets were literally giving them away. And they, management had been fired because they squandered assets and overinvested at the wrong time, overpaid. And that was a signal that maybe the commodity sector was having a major bottom. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. So it was a very deflationary time. And gold, gold tends to be the leader in inflation and deflation. I've tracked this my whole career. And I think that people get it wrong. They don't understand. So gold is, is the leader. Gold right now is, is telling us we've got very strong deflationary trends. And in 2015, uh, gold bottomed, I think, after the Fed raised interest rates and uh, the gold shares bottomed the next month. And then they just took off in 2016. Gold was up massively. And the gold shares, I think, at one point were up 170% from the lows. And that's, you know, how could this be happening? We're in a, a time of deflation. That's just the way <laughs> these anomalies work. Yeah. And so... When you've got a theory on, on something, how, how do you know that the market has then validated that theory? That's because you're talking about false breakouts, all this stuff. Do you watch that closely? Well, I think we have to be, as I say, very flexible and very humble. And if you know that there are false breakouts and false breakdowns, then you're very careful about forecasting a change. But it, when it's global in nature, for example, the interest interest rate increase we've seen in the last uh, year and a half. That's been global in nature. Even in Japan, there's been pressure or commodities went up uh, before they started to get weak in the last couple of months. It was all commodities were going up. So it's the confirmation of it's the sector and commodity stocks were going up, commodities were going up. And that's always what you look for is as much confirmation as you can possibly have. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. And moving on to another theory you have of contagion. Uh, this, can you explain to us this theory of contagion and how you've used it when you've been investing? Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting thesis. And in 2002... I read that there was a 500-year flood in Eastern Europe. And I was thinking, 500 years? Wow, not 50, not 100, but 500 years are insurance companies reserved for this kind of a shift. 
under my theory of contagion, if an outlier event continued one more time, then it was a contagion until proven otherwise. This is 2002, and look what we're having now. I mean, UK, <laughs> hottest ever, and forest fires all across Europe, and, and you know, incredible heat. The southwest United States, drought, uh, drought in California. Yeah. It's the worst in 1,200 years. I mean, this goes on and on and on. And we, we kept a list of all these extreme weather events. And rather than getting involved early on in the debate over climate change, we just started talking about extreme weather events. So, so that's certainly one. We were able to write a report 10 days before 9-11, which was titled Islamic Fundamentalism, the World's Greatest Threat. And we mentioned bin Laden and so on. And the reason why we were able to do that was because I noticed that there was an increase in hostilities between Israel and Palestine that had never been higher and I looked at the attacks that had been on the U.S. There was a USS Cole had been attacked, the American embassy in Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I saw a global contagion of these kinds of things. And that's what you look for. It's, you know, the universe is giving you the signals, but most people don't pay attention or connect the dots. And I love doing that. And yeah. I'm good at it. And it's, Gives you uh, insight into the future. The future is all there if you quiet the mind. And finally, an, another theory that you've got is investors are disproportionately impacted by their last big trauma. Can you take us through how you took advantage of this uh, during inflation? I mean, you touched on it already, but it sort of uh, explains it in the eighties. Well, it was fascinating that. People were so tied to believing that inflation was going to continue. And I, you know, would clip articles from the newspapers in the 80s, and I had, you know, literally stacks proving that we were in disinflation. The dollar was, I mean, unbelievably strong. Commodities had crashed. U.S. GDP had been 50% deregulated. There was so much evidence. Real rates were the highest in the post-war period, anywhere between 5 and 8%. First time ever in the post-war period. But people refused to be looking at it because they'd been so traumatized by the collapse in bonds in 1980. And why that was a surprise to them, I just don't understand. Because commodities had soared in 1979. Gold had gone from 300 to 900. So we'd gone from 5 to 50. that soaring commodity prices would be bad for bond prices. So the losses were massive. So the first financial futures was a 20-year treasury bond. It began to trade in January 1980 at 8%. And by March, if I remember correctly, it was trading at a 15% yield. So it was the greatest capital loss probably in U.S. history. So many people were traumatized. And by that, trauma, they were blind to what was going on. And I would argue that was the same this time around, except in reverse, that they were just so lured into the, the good times of lower for longer and disinflation, free money, that they couldn't envision that there would be a different time. And that's when that's when you need to be really on top of things. You don't want to be late on those terms. That's when everything you made in the last bull market can be lost. And do you think um, we're entering an age again where commodity prices are going to be rising for a long period of time? Well, I would think that we had 19 trillion of sovereign credit with a negative yield. For the first time in the history of interest rates, I think it was a guy who wrote a book on the history of interest rates for 5,000 years. Never in history were there negative interest rates. And when you figure that sovereign credits are, in effect, bankrupt, and we were actually paying them to borrow from them. I mean, we would look back at this period with incredulity that it could happen. So I would argue that having a deflation is not the likely outcome. We're already there. And that what we're going to have is 
is a secular inflation. And we have to invest based on that. And we have to look for a real rate of return after inflation, which is going to be very challenging for most people who've never done it. Theoretically, commodities would then, the right commodities at least, would be potentially benefit from a a period of high inflation and constrained supply in some areas. And what we have not had and what we need for the roaring bull market commodities is a weak dollar. And when the Fed pivots, I think it's a when, not an if, the dollar will get weak. And for whatever it's worth, the commercial traders of, uh, of dollars have been upping their shorts to one of the highest positions in the last three or four years. And they tend to generally be right. So let's move on now to some of the themes that at 13D we focus on uh, today. One of them is the new world order. So what, what are the consequences of a, of a changing world order with China becoming the major sort of power? Well, we, we began this, this theme, if you will, the alliance of the aggrieved and the revenge of colonialism. The alliance of the aggrieved is an expression that was coined by Zbig Brzezinski, who was national security advisor under Jimmy Carter. And Henry Kissinger said several times that he admired Speak tremendously and thought that he was one of the great brains in geopolitics. And in 1999, he wrote a book. And in that book, he said, my greatest fear is that China and Russia will come together in an alliance of the aggrieved. So I was aware of this. And I started thinking about it. Now, just before the Olympics began in China, Russia and China signed a 5,000-word agreement, which we got off of the Kremlin website and read twice. And there was speculation after it was signed that they weren't very tight, but they're very tight. And it's been confirmed by events. And what Putin says is similar sometimes to what President Xi says. They almost use the exact same words. Then I started thinking about the fact that in 1914, Europe controlled 87% of the world's landmass. Now, look at the map of Europe. It's this tiny little post-it stamp on this massive planet. And Europe controlled the world for 2,000 years. Think about it. French West Africa, the Belgian Congo, and of course, India was also included Pakistan and Bangladesh when uh, the UK was, was running it. And all of these places were run for the economic benefit of the colonial superpower. And there was huge exploitation of natural resources, of people that were not well treated. And what we're starting to see is the return of these grievances. And they're starting to align themselves the BRICS, for example, are expanding. There was a meeting of the, the Arab Council, I think 22 members, and they're discussing joining the BRICS. And what we're talking about is 45% of the world's population and the vast majority of the world's landmass and also where the commodity assets are, in other words, the producers. And so they're starting to come together, we're just seeing signs of it. You know, it's, it isn't proven. Nothing is ever proven. The, the meeting between Biden and Saudi Arabia and what was said, the fact that Obrador of Mexico would not show up at the Council of the Americas. And then later Biden met with him and after Biden had a brief introduction, Obrador lectured him for 30 minutes. You're starting to see this. And it's not too difficult to assume that the unipolar world is over and the multipolar world is beginning. And if we're right about the producers holding the cards and the consumers holding no cards, this is going to be a very powerful shift of, of new world order. 
of massive geopolitical consequences. And the Western media, unfortunately, is so wound up in its emotionalism over Ukraine that they're missing what's going on. And there has been some understanding that the non-aligned are, are massive in terms of population and significance. India, Brazil, Nigeria, Southeast Asia, Latin America, Africa. I mean, these are, these are massive places. So it's one of the most interesting, intellectually interesting subjects I've ever been involved in. And we're going through country by country and talking about their grievances. I, mean, I could just hit a few here. China, of course, had a century of humiliation. You may remember China saw itself as the center of the universe. It was the Middle Kingdom. And of course, it had become very corrupt and very inefficient and also very defensive. China invented gunpowder. China invented uh, many other things. But then the Europeans came in and basically humiliated China. And the British started to push addiction of opium, which they did for well over 100 years. And that was an incredible humiliation for a proud country. And something that, that just sticks in my memory that I just can't forget is in Paraguay, it took a Supreme Court ruling by the Paraguayan Supreme Court in 1956 to rule that indigenous people were, quote, human beings. Up to that time, they had to bow before their master and sleep with the dogs. So, I mean, you add all this up, you've got a very, very powerful history of grievances. And the thing about grievances is, if they're responded to once, then a whole bunch of other grievances show up. It's the funny, the way the world works. So in, in the late 19th century, child labor was pervasive, working 16 hours a day in sweatshops, but it was accepted. Today, when it doesn't exist, were it ever to show up, we just go berserk. Yeah, explain that to me. It's just what society says it is. So society says it was okay then, it's terrible now. And this idea of grievances, look at the Pope. He's going to apologize to the indigenous people for the Catholic Church having taken the indigenous people and re-educated them. So you can see it. If you're watching it, you'll see these grievances are surfacing and are being responded to. Very powerful trend that hardly anybody's aware of or paying attention to, as usual, in the early stages. Um, what, if any, do you think are the implications of this that people will start to feel most quickly? Is the, from what I've been hearing, for example, China has been buying up a lot of the global commodities in places like Africa, like, like you sort of mentioned, is that going to cause problems over supply of these commodities? Because, you know, even just taking electric vehicles, if we need these things and we're not able to get them, um, what does that mean? Is it going to cause an, an era of, of political unrest? I think it's uh, the alliance, meaning more countries joining the BRICS, more countries joining the, um, the Shanghai group, more countries coming together that are not aligned with the, the West, if you will. I think that's, that's, that's happening. And then former U.S. Uh, partners, such as Saudi Arabia, all of a sudden acting very independently. I mean, I can't believe that a president of Mexico would, would lecture a president of the United States at any time in past history. So these things are starting to happen. And, I mean, OPEC itself was, in effect, a, a coming together because the U.S. had cut off the dollar from gold and there was a lot of inflation and it was a way to protect their assets. So I think we'll, we'll see more of that coming. There's uh, talk about... Um, Thailand and Indonesia coming together into a rice cartel, those, those kinds of things. And coming back to the commodities such as copper, et cetera, is it safe to invest in every country? Or do you, do you try and aim for, to invest in producer countries that are slightly more on a, as a safe investment side, if you see what I mean? 
Is that something you look at? Well, I mean, Chile, of course, is a huge resource uh, for copper and uh, lithium. Sometimes you don't have a choice. The history of these of these things is that they just increase their royalty. I think if I had a choice, I would be focusing on very safe jurisdictions. The copper investment I have is in Saskatchewan, which is, if you will, maybe the best mining jurisdiction in the world. And the, the premier of Saskatchewan is, you know, behind the project. So I think, you know, this isn't a time to be a hero. There will be a, a time maybe to be a hero, but I just don't think it's right now. Yeah. Obviously, you've invested a lot in, in China before. What, what are your thoughts on investing there again? Because if they have a lot of control over the manufacturing of even semiconductors and things such as this, would you consider them again? How much risk is there? Uh, we have some very good research uh, on China, and our recommendations have done extremely well. Our themes there have really worked. One of our companies is, for example, Amperex Technology, is a global leader in uh, EV battery technology. And you know, if you want to be, be in EVs, that's certainly the place to be. China, on a purchasing parity basis, is the largest economy in the world. I think that the way I look at history is that it's the dynamism of the people that really is what drives it. And certainly ancient Greece and ancient Rome, then it was spread to the Middle East, and then it came back through Spain, and of course into, into Italy again, it was Renaissance, and then it spread you know, across Europe at various times and places, France at one time, the UK, Germany, and then in the US. So I think this is China's time. So China was tied down by regulations and by 5,000 years of history, and the people were just chafing at the bit to be released. And when Deng went to Shenzhen in March 1992, and I was there, and he said, to be rich is glorious. And the world changed for China, and all the offshore Chinese just mobbed into China to invest. So there's a dynamism of the people and a drive and an ambition to have a better life. And five or 600 million have been taken out of poverty in China, which has never been done before. And that's another inducement for other countries in Africa and Latin America to follow the Chinese model, because they said, if we want to raise our people out of poverty, let's do what the Chinese did. So I think investing in China is, is important. And obviously, there's a tension be- between the U.S. and China that's at its greatest extreme, and I don't see that diminishing. If one were optimistic, you would argue that it's just going to lead into a race for global supremacy, but that it won't involve military. But Graham Allison, who is a founding dean of the Kennedy School, wrote a book called Destined for War, where China and America fall into Thucydides' trap. And Thucydides, some argue, was the greatest historian of all. And he wrote about the Peloponnesian Wars, Athens and Sparta. And Sparta could not abide the rise of Athens. So they basically self-destructed and entered ancient Greece as we know it. And since then, there have been 16 instances when a rising power has threatened the dominance of the existing power. And 12 of them have led to war, so the odds are not good. That's essentially the cause of the First World War. And I'm oversimplifying a very complicated subject. But. So we follow this very carefully. And... I would argue that the, the odds don't look great at this moment. But that doesn't mean we can't invest in China. And so on a slightly related topic, uh, you've also got a theme on rethinking supply chains and deglobalization. The COVID crisis has made nations aware of the risks of not having control of their supply chain and encouraged trends such as protectionism, reshoring. Can you tell us more about this trend? And its repercussions? Well, supply chains being reconfigured are very expensive. And building anything these days is very expensive, as anybody is finding out if we're trying to build something. And obviously, if there's a recession, it maybe becomes less expensive. But essentially, you know, if I'm right, 
ingredients into building factories uh, or LNG plants or whatever keep going up. And if you try to do anything at scale, of course, it becomes even more expensive. So the idea of reshoring for the U.S., I think, is, is a very good step. But I don't think people have any idea how inflationary it's going to be because everything is so much more expensive in the U.S. And by the time it gets built, it'll be vastly more expensive than what was in place in China. So it remains to be seen how this will unfold because if you're trying to fix an inflation with higher interest rates and curtailing uh, credit use, and you're, you're having a reshoring of activity that's going to be inflationary, how is that supposed to work? So obviously, semiconductors are very important. You know, it's the building block of the technologies of the future. It's been very concentrated in Asia. And Taiwan Semiconductor is the leading company in the world. Every country wants to be self-sufficient in semiconductors. And just taking a little wander into Ukraine here for a second, neon gas is a key ingredient in semiconductors. And Ukraine produced 50% of neon gas in the world. And it was produced through these giant uh, steel plants from the Soviet era. And apparently the larger the steel plant, the more neon gas you can make. Well, Russia now is in control of all of those steel plants, meaning that Russia controls 50% of the world's neon gas. That doesn't mean that other countries can't produce neon gas, but if you don't have enough oil and gas and you have shortages of basic commodities, how are you going to do all this? This is where the scale comes in. And it's so it's a great idea, you know, electric vehicles. I mean, I'm transferring out all of my cars for electric vehicles. I believe in the environment. My home in the Bahamas, I'm taking off the grid. I believe in all this. But it's just the length of time needed for the transition that people are underestimating. It's the most important thing that needs to be understood. And do you believe that robots will in any way sort of act as a deflationary impact on supply chains, manufacturing, etc. Yeah, we've been following robotics for a long time, and I do think that that's, that's the case. But, you know, building the facility is going to take, you know, the ingredients. You need cement and you need steel and, 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 and other things. So once you have it built, it can run on, by robots, but robots can't build a plant, at least where I come from. Very true. And it's, it's the timing thing again, potentially. I can imagine it might take a long time for robots to get to a level where they can do everything that a human can do. Although some of these factories appear to be very advanced, particularly in car manufacturing. Let's move on to brain gain, which is a very interesting uh, theme that I, I, I was researching from 13D. Um, you think there's going to be a brain gain in Central Eastern Europe uh, down to sort of the, the trend of remote working and digital nomads. Can you take us through that and, and how that's going to play out? Well, I've been what I used to call a telecommuter most of my career. I want to live in a beautiful place and I choose to do so. And I work from there. My colleague, Woody, <laughs> he has three laptops and five smartphones and he's more advanced than I am. I mean, he, he's, he literally is... He can work from anywhere, and I can work from almost anywhere, but he, he is really extraordinary. And once people discovered that they could do this, it was so appealing. And you can run your, your, your business if you have a young family to put them in school in a place like Sun Valley or a beautiful spot is very, very appealing. And let's say working in Rome and prices are high, but you can still get the same salary and live somewhere that's beautiful and cheaper to live. So it's a big inducement. And as the world becomes more and more digitized, I think this is going to be a huge trend. No question about it. I have debates with my friends whether it really is different this time. And of course, those are the most dangerous words in the English language. <laughs> and it appears to me like there really is a big shift that's permanent. I, I mean, I can 
tell you from at least where I work in London, there's about 500 employees. Uh, we've, we're starting to see that definitely. There's a, a great, um, a lot of Europeans uh, come to London. It's a multicultural city. They come here, I imagine, a lot of the time because there's good salaries, a good, good working life. And then we're seeing that change and people moving back as much as they can so um, to where, you know, Italy and Spain, where they can still work remotely, but, you know, they get a salary that's more reasonable compared to what they were previously allowed locally. So it's, it's very interesting to see that once I researched uh, and saw that theme, I could actually just see it playing out even where I work now. Um, and I don't see it changing. Do not see it changing. So let's move on to water because um, really interesting topic. You foresee uh, there potentially being some problems in the future down to the necessity to have water as a, you know, an essential commodity. Can you go through that in a bit more detail? Well, we started with that theme and I think it was 2002. I read somewhere that 80% of water was being used for agriculture and it was subsidized, obviously, which means you use more of it. And we're seeing uh, in the US, the Colorado uh, River, which was the allocation, I believe, was based on 1922 water levels. I could be wrong on the date. It's been a long time since I looked at it. And of course, you know, this is 100 years later and usage has changed massively. And Lake Mead and Nevada is, I think, is the lowest it's ever been. And water is in the, the wrong place and therefore civilization can't survive without water. So the wars of the future will definitely be over water. And one of the examples is the snow melt from the Himalayas. I think there are eight rivers that flow into the you know, Indian uh, plain. And I believe that seven are controlled by China and only one is controlled by India. It might be a little out of date. I haven't looked at this for a long time. This, of course, is is very big issue between the two countries. And with global warming, and the drought that we're having and the heat that we're, we're experiencing, it's going to become more and more of an issue. So we decided 20 years ago we wanted to invest in water, water utilities and water companies and so on, because water utilities were underpricing water. We knew that the prices were going to have to go up to curtail consumption. So I think it's a, it's a great investment. It's, it's a long-term investment. You know, it's something... It's not going to be a rocket ship, but it's a steady appreciator, a perfect theme, example of the theme that we, we would follow in the styles and invest in. And as a final theme to touch on, um, I just thought I'd pick up on 5G because, people, I mean, people have heard about this for quite some time, but the, the interesting thing from my point of view is that you mentioned that whoever dominates the 5G tech race will dominate the world. And it, would, it would just be great to go into a bit more detail on that. Well, the technologies of the future. I mean, clearly the race between China and the U.S. is which country will dominate the technologies of the future. And there was something in China called Made in China. I think it was 2025. Years ago, it first showed up. And somehow, about two years ago, the U.S. started to focus on it. And essentially, China was talking about high-end manufacturing, but also some of the technology of the future. But it's it's... You know, AI and blockchain and Internet of Things, all those are, are dependent on, on 5G. And, of course, 6G is coming down the pike. So we've been following the U.S. trying to stop the expansion of Huawei. And at one time, there was a, an American who was born in Taiwan who had a prominent position in corporate planning at Huawei who explained to us, what the advantage was of the Huawei technology. And he said, it's for the operating company, the telco, it's much cheaper. And then I said, well, what about this idea that you're going to plant a bug in the hardware? He said, well, why would we plant a bug in the, in the back end, which can be discovered when the front end software can be hacked and no one knows that it was you? That's logic. And then he told me that 
the Huawei system is tested in various countries, like Germany and the UK, which is run by the local intelligence and the local telco. Again, I'm, I'm out of data on all this. This is a conversation from three or four years ago, but you get the, the, the essence of why there's this, there's this attempt to, to keep Huawei from expanding. It's very intense. Instead of saying, okay, it's a, it's a moon race, you know, we're going to beat Huawei, we're going to outspend them and out discover the best way of doing this. That's what JFK did, but that's not the approach right now. And the, you touched on the blockchain there. Do you, do you see that as being a, a sort of part of the future technology uh, theme out there? Or do you think this is just a sort of fad? Is, how important is the blockchain in the future of the technology you're seeing? I think blockchain is very, very significant and very important. And definitely, definitely coming. And it's just like the green energy revolution, Web 3.0. It's coming. It's just going to take longer than people expected. Okay. And it's a good place to stop, I think. And I, 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 it's been a wonder to have the opportunity to speak to you, Kirill. And thank you very much for, for your time. Um, if there was one bit of parting advice you could have to, for fellow investors, what would that be? Study history. Study financial history. Stay humble. And remember that a rising market is financial genius. And anytime you start to feel really, really smart, it's just about the time you're going to make a big mistake. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for your insights. And um, was there anything else you'd like to say before we finished up? No, I think that's about it. It was a great pleasure to be here and look forward to seeing you one day in London. Thank you, Carol. And just where, where can people find more of your insights is the best place to go to 13d.com where can they read your research and 13 that's the right place brilliant thank you very much carol it's honestly been a pleasure that's same here have a good afternoon thanks for listening everyone just a quick note before we sign off if you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets this might be of interest Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Go fruition.